Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My guest today is Dr. Carla Ionescu. And we are to, going to discuss Greek mythology today. And as always, of course, how did you end up studying Greek mythology? Oh, <laughs> that's a good, that's a good beginning. So um, I think I've always been in love. I think most of us sort of when we're kids, we, um, our first taste of mythology at all is usually either like fairy tales or Greek mythology or a combination of the two. And so I think as a kid, I read all of the Greek myths, you know, in a, in a, in a sort of childhood form. And then uh, in high school, the same, I came to Canada. And in high school, I took sort of ancient myth, ancient history, that kind of stuff. And I wanted to be a lawyer. So that was sort of a side thing for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then I went, I got to university and I was going, I was applying for law school and doing all those things. And I came across, um, Artemis of Ephesus, you know, and uh, I just became, well, I guess one could say obsessed with her a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> I kind of, I forgot about law school. Um, although I still love law, but I forgot about law school. And I went into archaeology, ancient history, classics, and I did religion studies. So I just kind of found my way around um, Artemis and she just became the vortex of mm-hmm. all of my studies. Um, but, and continues to be the vortex of my studies. Mm. So I'm going to discuss some of this later, of course, but there, there is some rare stories and some quite grotesque ones in Greek mm. mythology. Not, not necessarily the kids' stories for that, for that matter, if you will. Right, right. So there is a, one of the things that really fascinated me, especially about Artemis, but all mythology, especially as you get older, is, yeah, how much bloodier, crueler, um, vicious... The Olympians were, and all gods in most mythology is certainly European mythology. But in the Greek mythology, I think because we watch a lot of Disney, like Hercules, and you know we watch a lot of that mm. light version. Yeah. That by the t- by the time you get to read the the real myths, you're like, wow, this mm-hmm. is quite severe, right? So yes. yeah. <laughs> so of course, does Greek mythology have an origin? Do we have an idea where it kind of comes from? Was it just an oral tradition, or did do we have an idea where we first started to appear in the Greek world? Okay, so that's so that's a yes and mostly yes answer. Um, so Greek, of course, Greek mythology comes out of once the Greek civilization established itself. However, so we have documented data like Plato, Socrates, Pausanias, we have lots of Herodotus, like you saw, Thucydides, um, we have lots of authors, early authors who wrote about mythology. Mm. 
to them, of course, this was religious practice, right? Like this was their religious Mm -hmm. lives. So that's why we have temples and all of those spaces. Now, where did it come from before the Greeks? That's a little bit up for debate. So we know that in some areas of Greece, there was, of course, the Mycenaeans and the Minoans and other Mediterranean pre-Greek cultures. But, and we're told by some archeologists that these areas were conquered by Northern people, maybe no, you know, people of coming from Northern areas of Europe or from Russia and Siberia, depends on who you talk to. And so what happens is when they arrived, let's say down in the Mediterranean and in the Middle East, there was this kind of conquest going on and the goddess cultures that were already there were conquered by these more masculine tribes. And so we then have the marrying of the goddesses to these male divinities like Zeus and Apollo and things like that. Well, now how about shoes like to get around? Yeah, right? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Right? So, so I think it was an evolution in a way. It became a combination and then an evolution. And then, yeah, we have lots, lots and lots of writings of different rituals, of different practices, lots of primary source. Yeah. Was, was this kind of the, like the Bible in to the Greeks? Did they believe, did they actually believe in it or was it more like storytelling? No, no, for, it was, for... yeah, that's a great question. It was like the Bible to them. You know, one of the things I teach my students is that we don't always recognize how seriously the Greeks took. This was their religion, right? So this mm. was their real gods. They offered real sacrifices. They had real celebrations. They believed in the underworld. In fact, their burial of their dead was so severe to them, so important to them. Um, and the, the rituals around burials and birth and rites of passage, so important to them. So this was their true religion. And in fact, there are Greeks today in Greece and in other places in the world that want to return to that religion, mm. right? That are now taking up the worship of Zeus and of Dionysus and of Apollo. And they want to sort of push off Christianity and go back to the old ways or the old gods. Mm. Yeah. Is this, how is this looked upon in the modern world that people want to go back to the ancient Greeks, time so, the Greek mythology? It, I mean, it's a weird situation because many Greeks today, for example, take a lot of pride in, in that history. Mm. Uh, if you go to Sparta, for example, and you talk about the Spartans, um, there's a great deal of pride in, in that history. But Greeks are also Orthodox Christians. And so that's very ingrained in the culture as well. So it's from my understanding, and I'm not an expert on this, although it's something I'd like to look into when I head back into uh, Greece this fall. Um, they are given some allowance. So nobody's harassing them or bothering them or anything like that, because they do a lot of their worshiping outside. So they meet in like parks or sometimes in forests and things like that. Have you, so, have you no, ever witnessed this yourself? Or? I've seen it on YouTube. I haven't seen it. So they film themselves and their, and their practices and they post them. So I haven't attended one myself, but I would like to. I would like to attend um, one. Yeah. I mean, if you know, it's, it's interesting because if you know a little bit about Orthodox history, they kind of really frown upon other religions. So it's quite surprising that they actually are kind of opening up to this other, to accepting kind of some people going back. Yeah. It, it, I think for them, it's a bit of a dilemma because it, it's, it's a bit of pride in their history. 
the temples are clearly there. And so there's, there's clear evidence that there's ancient worship happening there. But I think because those that are Christians still consider that practice pagan, yeah. right? And so, you know, there's sort of this negative connotation around it. Um, so I think they're in, in a weird position right now. Now, it depends how big these groups get. I mean, at this point, the groups of so-called new neo-Zeus worshipers or neo-Olympians, mm. they're pretty small, right? So they're not really threatening the status quo at this point in time. Mm. Uh, but perhaps if they grow, I guess we will see how that we'll see how that goes. Yeah. yeah. So not I'm not all necessarily all in mid-read mythology, all heroes are heroes. If you read you read some basic and you find out that not all villains are necessarily villains. How does how does that if that makes that may not make sense among the listeners, but how how would you explain this exactly? That not, maybe not all heroes are heroes and villains are necessarily villains. I think one of my favorite explanations for that uh, is the concept, for example, of the female monsters. And so, for example, Medusa, Scylla, Charybdis, um, the Harpies, all of these female monsters or villains or bad, scary beings. I think what happens is, especially today, we are starting to analyze the original myths a bit closer. So for a long time, their stories as villains, as bad guys or bad women were um told only by early classicists, you know, so only what kind of what they discovered and they went, oh yeah, that's a monster. That's a bad person. And now I think as more people are starting to take interest in villains in our popular culture, right? Even in Hollywood, people are looking back at these monsters and they're going, well, perhaps they weren't really that monstrous as we thought they were. And in fact, for example, someone like Medusa is now being discussed as a hero, as a sort of, um neo-feminist symbol right mm. of the woman that is a victim mm. of course of abuse and then um has power in her in her snake so she has now become in a way a hero yes yes so it's like the idea is like perhaps the hair of snakes mm. is her defense system right Yeah, And so a lot of people are starting to look at monsters in the ancient world or like monstrous people. And even like, for example, Circe, like if you've seen that, uh, the book, I'm reading the book of Circe now by Madeline Miller, which is a, a retelling. It's a historical fiction. But again, Circe in the, in the Odyssey has this bad reputation mm. as an evil witch. And now in modern culture, she's becoming a hero and everybody is, Going, oh yeah, I want to learn more about Circe and I want to see her in this new light. So, mm. so I think I, I think it's us. Like as a society, we are now interested. It, it's the same thing. Like for example, in Hollywood with uh, Thor and Loki, right? Where yeah. everybody now sees Loki as this hero, like kind mm. of anti-hero hero, right? Um, I think the same is happening for Greek mythology. People are starting to look at these characters that for so long were villains and go, hmm, maybe they have a story to tell. Maybe that story is more interesting, or maybe I can relate to that story more than just the hero, oh. right? Speaking of speaking of Cersei, I was, I was watching somewhere on YouTube. I think it was on YouTube where it, in, in this Odyssey where she makes sure turn all these people into animals, the guards, and it should actually be based sort of on a real story because it was kind of like a that it was drudge and drudge them into thinking 
that it was actual drugs that they were unread familiar with yet. So it should right. be that technically real story and that Odysseus got kind of this anti-drug thing. Right. So it should be possibly tr- sort of a true story. That yes. they just believed they weren't actually turned into animals, but they thought that they were yes. animals. Yes, like she gave them some type of a hallucinogen, maybe, yeah. as she, you know, because she was um, a witch, like in the sense that she was making potions with the plants on her island. And of course, they didn't know. Um, so, yeah, that, that could be possible for sure. Um, I mean, there are historians that are working on following the, the journey of Odysseus and trying mm-hmm. to see if we have any evidence of it actually being a true story. Um, I mean, so far they haven't found anything, but could be. I mean, I think we discussed this in our review of a year ago where we talked about the Odyssey on the podcast. And uh, mm. if, if you look at the map, it's not really that far the distance it actually goes. It's not really that far. It wouldn't, it wouldn't take 10 years for Odysseus <laughs> to come from Ethiopia to back to Greece again. Right? Right. It's not, if you look at the map, it's not that far, as far as you think it is. Right, right. That, I mean, that's one of the dilemmas. But I guess he spent so much time uh, being a guest to all mm. of these individuals mm. <laughs> before going home that perhaps, you know, mm. yeah. yeah. So, and it just, just sent back quite a few times so, by... Uh, what's Sea Garden again? I, I forget his name. Poseidon. Poseidon, yes, that's right. Yeah. Doesn't he yeah. does mess with him a little bit? Yes, 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 yes. He upsets some of the you know he's favored by some of the gods, and then he really pisses off some of the gods too. <laughs> Actually, there's something I wanted to talk about because the gods are aren't like our god. He's just does just leave us alone, let us develop. But if it's you know, sort of, uh, but they they're kind of mischievous, aren't they? They like mm-hmm. to play play tricks on human. Mm-hmm. The human race, don't they? The, the gods, like they are, are, they just want to have some fun by themselves. Yes, yes. So I think that the Greeks really, so, and perhaps other cultures as well, they really created these divinities that were in many ways like humans. So they have like jealousy, anger, favoritism, all these kind of qualities. At the same time, they have these supernatural powers. And so they're, you know, above humanity. But I think that for the Greeks, they were more relatable. So it's like, if something bad happens because of this, then I know that like Apollo or Poseidon or whoever is upset with me, like Odysseus getting lost at sea. Mm. Or, you know, if something great happens and I defeat this or I conquer that, then this God is favoring me. So I think for them, it was much more logical. I think for us today with one Mm. monotheistic God, it's almost like, there was a corporation of gods. And mm. then as we move into Christianity, we have only one CEO God. Yeah. yeah. And in a way, this God does all the things all the other gods did. It's just one person, one deity. Mm. Right. Um, but the Greeks really loved, loved their different characters. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So Mount Olympus, did they actually believe that the gods lived there? Or did it kind of like, it's probably that like they just like for good measure I think for the lack of a better word think they just were kind of fun playing around well, with. So there is a real Mount Olympus mm. in Greece that you can climb, and of course when you go when you're at the top of Mount Olympus, there's nothing there. Um, so I think that they imagined 
that the Olympians lived above the top of Mount Olympus kind of thing. You know what I mean? And so the actually Greek religion was very interesting because they believed that gods could incarnate and be in your life, which is why they have this very um, in-depth guest and host tradition. So they believe that gods walked among us with our, our faces. So you don't know it's a God and they might knock on the door anytime. Or they might well, come into your life. to cheat and cheat and just say, knock on the door and say, hey, I'm a god. I'm the Zeus. Just recently enough. I'm, I'm on a holiday. <laughs> I don't know how easy that was, but it was standard practice. And it continues to be today that um, Greeks had to host anybody that showed up to their door. And in fact, they had to give them their best meat, their best wine, their best bed. There are stories in which some of the Greeks um, give you like, they, they put you in their room, in their beds. So because the idea was that you can never turn away somebody just in case they were a god and then you piss them off. Hmm. Um, I don't There's know. There's plenty of story of that in Greek mythology. Right? Right? Uh, and, and think about all the stories in which the gods show up to the heroes hmm. or heroines uh, as like old people or ugly people. Like they really love to play with human minds in that hmm. way. So I think the Greeks were always cautious. And then we have all these interpretations in which Zeus is seducing women, Apollo is seducing women. Mm. So there's all these seductions being done mm. to women by these God people. Um, so there's a lot. So the Greeks really believe that the gods were walking among them just to play, you know, and to have fun. Like Aphrodite, for example, always has relationships with shepherds you know and she's mm. bored she just walks around and seduces people i mean everyone got their fetishes i suppose i suppose i suppose yeah and this was a great way of saying oh well that might have been a god mm. right and then if you think about all the people that claim to have god ancestry right like mm. uh oh you know zeus is my great great grandfather or achilles is my great great grandfather mm. or whatever uh, Hercules is said to have had 500 children. Mm. And so many of the ancient Greek descendants claim to be descendants of Hercules because he had so many children. Mm. Anything is possible. Yeah. Uh, something that's quite, you also see a lot in Greek mythology is the star signs. That mm. see, that, that, I think we still have names from today that the stories evolved around the star signs. So how... The, how did they incorporate the star signs into Greek mythology? I think that's a great idea. So, for example, many heroes like Hercules become a constellation um, as sort of the way to immortalize who they are. And so um, the Greeks were fascinated by the stars, by the cosmos. They were great astronomers. And even did they believe the Earth was flat or did they know it was round? You know, that's a great question. Uh, they believe that all planetary bodies were round. So they have this sort of uh, perfect spherical um, idea of the cosmos. But don't quote me because I'm not an expert in that. But it would make sense to me that they would assume that the earth may also be a sphere. You know what I mean? Um, so when they looked up at the sky and they saw all the planets, they knew they were, they thought they were all perfectly round and they had this concept. So um, yeah, I think it would make sense that they would think that the earth was round, certainly in the way that they chartered their, their maps and navigated their ships. Um, 
but I cannot, and I, I'm not an expert. I cannot recall an ancient source that says someone else might be able to do that, that the earth is round for sure. You know, mm-hmm. um, but they did understand that planets were circular in nature and they did have a whole philosophy around that. So, so how, how big deal was sacrifices and how did sacrifice ritual to a God kind of take place? within Greek world and to the Greek gods and Greek Greek mythology as well. I would say definitely a major, major part of ritual, beginning with human sacrifice. So for example, Artemis and Sparta, in the beginning, we are told that there were people, young men, sacrificed to her before a battle in the beginning, sort of, you know, 3000 years ago or so. And then as you know, Spartans evolved and everybody evolved and the Athenians evolved, the Greek uh, tribes started to come more together and human sacrifice was not something that was, began to be frowned upon. What they began doing is like sharing in the sacrifice. So Spartan young men before a battle would um, lash themselves, right? With these sharp lashes mm-hmm. so that they would bleed and they would bleed on the statue of Artemis, for example. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is the belief was that if like 20 young men lashed themselves, it was enough blood to qualify as one whole person kind of thing. So, so she would still be, yeah. So she was, she would still be satisfied. She wouldn't be upset, but it wouldn't be death, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also incorporated bull sacrifices and of course, other animal sacrifices and, um, There are some stories, for example, of Artemis of Ephesus, where they would chop off the bull testicles, which are a symbol of power, and put them on her statue um, as as an honor. So blood and sacrifice was really, really big. And for a long time, for example, the Greeks wouldn't eat meat unless it was first a part of it was sacrificed to the gods. So if you wanted to have like a steak, you couldn't just go have one without sacrificing a part of your animal to the god. Right. So that was very, very important. It was almost, you know, the only way to eat meat was to sacrifice some of it at the altar to the God. Right. I guess steakhouse uh, really had to sacrifice quite a lot then, huh? Yes. 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 And I think actually that they ate less meat than we think they did. That's another Mm. part that archaeologists are starting to study more and more because they had to offer sacrifice. They couldn't just go cut their animal and kill it and eat it. Um, they had to do it at certain celebrations and certain times, depending who, if it's Zeus, if it's Athena, whoever it is that they're celebrating. So they ate meat, but but they had to be very careful about when they did it and made sure it was sacrificed at the altar, make sure there was a priest or a shaman doing it. So hmm. it was a little more complicated than we think. Foster kind of punishment or prison or death sentences if if this wasn't the procedure wasn't followed, like so, would you be punished for if you didn't? Do do the right way? Well, certainly the gods would be punishing. So the community, I'm not sure the community. Would you be frowned upon? In, in Definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think it was so ingrained in them that the god would be so upset and everything would go bad for you mm. that um, I cannot think of any instances where someone is like, oh, you ate a goat before you sacrificed it. It was just so natural to them to sacrifice parts, not the whole thing, of course, but parts of it to the gods. Uh, But yes, it would be definitely frowned upon. And 
you really are then incurring the wrath of the gods. I don't know if you're ready, but, you know, you don't want to incur the wrath of the gods for... That, that makes sense the way my, my life has taken the direction. <laughs> you're not sacrificing enough of your... I'd rather not sacrifice some roosters after this, so... Before I eat, I think. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, uh, yes. something we haven't discussed yet is women's place in Greek mythology. And, mm. and I was reading Charlotte, Professor Charlotte Higgins' book a while, a while ago about Greek mm-hmm. mythology. And she mentioned that weaving, weaving is a big part of women's. So how does, how does that make, take place, so, the weaving and women's place in history, in so Greek I mythology, think, sorry? Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a couple of ways. The first one is... One of the things that we have to remember is that just because the Greeks worship goddesses, particularly the Athenians, does not mean that women had rights. In fact, Athenian women had almost no rights, right? They couldn't even leave their house after they were married. And so sometimes I think people think, oh, well, they worshiped Athena, they worshiped Artemis, blah, blah, blah. But they worship goddesses, but not women, if that makes sense, yeah. right? So goddesses had certain amount of power and respect and they were feared, but women did not. And Athenians are famous for not having equality in their in their uh, communities. And so I think women's rights in Athens were a big issue because they didn't have any. Now in Sparta, for example, if we look at the Spartans, women had what we would call today equal rights, maybe even more rights because they used to take like three or four husbands uh, just in case one or two of them would die, you know? Um, and so there was always this kind of battle between the two, you know, the Athenians would look down at the Spartans saying, oh, well, your women are wild or whatever. And then the Spartans would look down at the Athenians saying, oh, your women are trapped or closed off. But the worship of goddesses really does not affect, there's so many cultures in the world where they worship goddesses, Mm. but it does not affect the way that women are treated. Mm. Um, So you can have a goddess culture with women still not having any rights. Um, something yeah. that that do seem to be quite kind of strong and sort of independent ideas in in the mythology stories, if you mm-hmm. read so. Yes, which is weird, right? So in mm-hmm. the mythology stories, for example, Athena and Aphrodite and Artemis, many of them are not married or refuse to stay married. At Demeter, too, um, many of them are seen as virginal or sort of don't want to have anything to do with men. Or in the case of Aphrodite, just seduce men and then goodbye. Um, so it is, I think it's because of, mm, I, there's a couple of, re- I think it's because in one way it's sort of pre-Greek traditions that these, these goddesses have power. In another way, I think it's a little bit of Greek men fetishes, you know, this idea of powerful women, just like the Amazons is very enticing to them, but the, your personal wife at home mm. So just that... <laughs> just stay home in the corner than I care. Right, like the women right. are supposed to do. Right? Uh, now, women did worship Artemis, and they did worship Athena, and they certainly worship Demeters. And then they have, like, for example, in Demeter, they have their own rituals that's just for women. Um, so there is, they did have, they did practice in the religion um, of the Greek world, but it didn't give them as much, like, let's say, legal power as perhaps we might think that it did. Yeah. I mean, you do have the Oracle of Delphi, which had to be a woman and a virgin. Yes, yes. And in the beginning, she was part of the wealthy class. And then as the oracles were dying because of the methane gas, 
uh, they started putting in uh, every, you know, lower class women in there. But everything that the Oracle said was transcribed by a male priest. Mm. So the Oracle would go into the seizure and she would babble something right incoherently. And then the male priest would hear that and translate it into a message for the person that came to the temple. So the people that came to the temple didn't speak directly to the oracle. In fact, they didn't even see her often, right? They would just see her priests. Yeah. And uh, something that I, uh, I found fascinating because I was reading Herodotus and well, this week, later this earlier, and uh, he mentioned that different Greek place, towns and places, states worship different God, that it wasn't like most people might think that the whole community worshipped that all of the gods, like one Athens might worship, for example, Zeus or Ares, while Spartan might, for example, worship Artemis or Apollo, for, for example. Yes, yes. And, you know, I think that's what's very confusing for classic students, because not only do they worship different gods in different villages or cities, but they also worship the same God somewhat differently in different places. Mm. <laughs> right? So then you have like the Artemis of Athens and the Artemis of Ravona and the Artemis of Sparta. And in some ways they're similar, but then they also have their own regional kind of characteristics or names. Right. And then in some places they're closer to other gods and in some places they're independent. So I think that that was I think that was really encouraged in the, you know, today we have a very we're very obsessed with, mm. for example, one book, one piece of writing, one correct way yeah. where I think in the ancient world, they really encourage making the god your own. Mm. You know, so they would have their own stories of. You know, how did Artemis arrive in our village? Well, she really liked this person. And then he built a temple for her. And then we have our own kind of relationship with the goddess. And she does this for us that she doesn't do anywhere else. And I think that was really encouraged because there was so much oral culture that someone didn't walk around with a book saying, oh, no, look, this is the way it's written here. And so it has to be exactly like this in all the villages. And yeah. so there's a lot of creativity, right? There's a lot of, um, it's like you have a God and you make it your own personal village God. Mm. And so they're, they're, you know, most of the ancient world is famous for that, not just the Greeks, for making these gods their own familiar divinities. And there was nothing wrong with that. You know, nobody saw that as blasphemy or anything bad. You know? I mean, you kind of answered a question already, but where, I assume the stories were orally told, like they weren't written down necessarily, like we do yeah. today. But so, were the stories the same if you went, like, again, that, those days are mostly only to ancient cities, I know. But from if you went from Athens to Sparta, would the stories be more or less the same, or there would be variations of the stories? So, for example, in the case of Artemis, if you were in Athens or Sparta, they would all recognize her as the goddess of the hunt. But mm -hmm. In Athens, she has a small shrine outside of the Acropolis with the Parthenon there. In Sparta, she has a major shrine um, in the middle, like just outside the city now, the modern city. So yes, in some ways, they would be recognizable, like Apollo is the god of the sun or Ares is the god of war. But then in other ways, like I said, every village would, would make it personal to them. Like, how did she arrive here? 
Why did we build this temple here for her? Mm. What does she do for us that's unique? So they would take that and make it their own in different places. Mm. Yeah. And then when Pausanias, for example, is walking, I mean, Pausanias in the ancient world did what we all do. We travel. He was basically a tourist and he wrote down in a journal all the ways that people practiced or what he saw. And that is one of our most foundational primary sources because he would say, oh, I went to this village and they practiced this here. And, and he would describe the temples and much of it we don't have anymore. Like we mm. only have leftover rocks. Mm. And so his work, I think is his journals is foundational to ancient history because he would describe what he saw or who he talked to or what it looked like. And so that really gave us an idea of the different gods in different cities and different villages. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you have to talk about the Romans and their takeover of the ancient gods. So how, how did it come and see, hey, we like this. So maybe we should just, <laughs> let's just make them around. How, how did that happen? Because they were kind of uh, did worship Greek culture already. Well, uh, they conquered it, you know, so they conquered Greece and uh, they really thought that Greeks were not really fighters. They thought of them more as poets and like they thought of them as soft. Um, Romans were hard Mm. workers and strategists. But one of the things that Romans did pretty much during the entire Roman Empire is they would find something and they would copy it and make it better. Mm. So they didn't really invent anything. Uh, I guess what you could say what they invented was how to make things better. Mm. And, uh, and they did that for weapons and for strategy and all that. But for the Greeks, they basically went, Oh, we really like this. This is our religion now. (laughs) It looks so great. We are going to just rename all your gods, except for Apollo. They loved that name Apollo because it's very Latin. So they're like, we're going to rename all your gods. They rebranded it. That's that's right. That's right. That is exactly right. They rebranded them all. Yes, yes. And it worked. I mean, mm. you know, they became the the main I mean, we named our planets after them, you know, 2000 years later and mm. uh so we can tell we 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 talk about Aphrodite as Venus most of the time, you know. So yeah, it's a mix between the Roman gods, even though they're the same, but it's it's a mix between the Roman gods and the Greek gods. I don't think there's any mix. It's really just rebranding, literally. You know, I'm, like I mean, if I was like, oh, I'm talking about the god, and I think talking about, for example, Mars, I could I be? I think you know, I was talking about the Greek version. Is is the stories mm-hmm. kind of similar, or are they... the stories? Are, yeah, the stories are almost exactly the same. I mean, Ovid, for example, um, and Virgil, who write re- rewrite Greek myth, Greek stories, like. Uh, the Aeneid and things like that, they expand more. So they have more privilege because Ovid and Virgil have the story, the old story, the Greek story in front of them. And then they go, hmm, how can I make the story better? And mm. so then they expand more. Uh, they, they, they add dialogue. They add scenery. They do more. But the story is the same, you know? Mm. Um, the Aeneas, for example, who is the... Trojan that also takes 10 years to come home has a more Roman take. Mm. So it's more Roman culture, but it's pretty much Odysseus's trip. Mm. You know? I mean, the Romans did believe so. It was one of one version of or, origin of Rome is that they did believe that they were ancient Trojans. Yes. And from the yes. Yes. of Troy. And they thought that they were 
descendants of the Trojans, right, mm. through Aeneas. And so they, um, they really uh, exp- expanded that story and Aeneas becomes the new Odysseus, right, mm. but a better version. And I guess a bit more Roman version because Aeneas really cares about his father and carries his father. And the whole point is to bring his father to this new land where Odysseus doesn't have any of that responsibility, right? In the old story, he just wants to get home to his wife. Um, Aeneas, because Rome was already very deeply like patriarchal, very pater, very uh, fatherly, um, Ovid gets to, or Virgil gets to make that story, remake that story himself, right? And um, and so it's a bit maybe a bit more romantic maybe. Um, there's more drama, you know. Dido sets herself on fire, so they were able to embellish a bit the story, yeah, make it a little more maybe exciting. I don't know. Do you have a favorite Greek mythology story that you are extra are extra fond of? Uh, my favorite. My favorite Greek mythology story is the story of Action, um, the one that Artemis catches, mm. the hunter that Artemis catches sneaking up on her. And it's my favorite because it's so vicious um, and uh, unapologetic in a way, right? You mm. know the story? You want me to tell you the story? I don't, don't, I think you heard briefly, but I'd probably, just, yeah, but I, I probably heard it, but if you just tell it, yeah. Yeah, so Action is this young man. He's just hunting in the woods with his dogs and his friends. And somehow he gets lost. He gets separated from his friends, his hunting buddies. And he's walking around the woods and he sees a goddess bathing or cleaning herself, bathing. She's naked. And he knows he's not supposed to look at her, but he's too tempted. He can't help it. So he sneaks up in I a mean, tree. I mean, I can't really blame the guy. <laughs> right so he's like oh and so he he knows he can't he shouldn't be looking because you're not supposed to be looking at gods uh but he sneaks up in a tree or in some stories he's behind the bush whatever and he's looking at her and of course she senses him and turns around and when she sees him she is so enraged at at him watching her without her consent that she she punishes him as he's running away he turns into a deer Mm. okay And so he's running away and he's now transformed into an animal, into a deer. And the dogs, his own hunting dogs and his hunting friends see him as a deer and attack him. And then his friends kind of circle, like the dogs trap him. His friends are circled around him and the dogs are eating him and tearing him apart all the time. He's screaming like I'm acting like trying to scream. Of course, he's got a deer mouth so he can't speak. But he's trying to scream to let them know that he's really acting on. But of course, they don't know. And they're all like saying to the dogs, yes, 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 tear the deer apart. And so the dogs kill and tear the deer apart. And Action um, is dead uh, in this most like tragic and vicious way, you know, in a way killed by the very thing that he was just doing 10 minutes ago and killed by his own friends and his own dogs. Right. you know, as the, so in a way, Artemis makes him feel the way she might have felt in the sense that mm-hmm. he's vulnerable, he's helpless, no one, you know, they're attacking him, whatever. Every time I hear that story, it both disturbs me, right? but it's so fascinating because of the violence and the fact that she's just like, yeah, that's what you get. 
<laughs> yeah, I think mine, my favorite, favorite personally, because it's so obscure, you probably have an certain idea of which I'm going to talk about, is the well, this Bill's Rex story. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, it's so weird. It's one of the strangest stories that I... Yes. That I have. Uh, it's so grotesque. It's kind of grotesque in the sense that it's very, how he ends up marrying his mother. And yes. he doesn't even know. And they, she hung herself and he doesn't know to weep for his children. And they have children. Her. Yeah, yes. that's, that's, yes. that's taking Sweet Home Alabama to a new level, I tell you. Yes, yes. Yes, there is a kind of cruelty in a way. And and of course, I think... Uh, and if you still think that Greek mythology is for children, then just read that story. Right? Exactly. And I think there's an irony there too. Like the Greeks really love when people try to escape their fate and then also end up being brought back to their fate anyway. Right? right? Yeah. Um, because Odysseus' father tries to get rid of him so he would escape the fate. And then of course, because he got rid of him, you could say... That's why the fate happened. Like, it's so, you know, mm. it's this idea that you cannot escape the gods' plan for you. You cannot yeah. escape your fate. Yeah. It's so yeah. Gr- kind of really gross in a way. That's it is gross. It is. I mean, the good thing, I think, is that he did not willingly marry his mother. Mm. I mean, so there's not that kind of perversion. But we know as the audience, we're like, oh, my God, what are you doing? Yeah. Uh, and then you know, of course, he blinds himself. Is it revealed? And though, it's been a while since I read it, so is it revealed? Does that that is his mother? It is yes, mother. yes, okay. yes, yes. That's why she throws herself off the castle wall, yeah. and he takes out his eyes, mm. right, and goes into the wilderness and disappears. I mean, do, I mean, did the reader know that it's mother until it's revealed? I, I don't remember. I don't think it is. Yes, yes. So we, so in the play, the audience that's watching the play of Oedipus, because it was a play, um, yeah, we all know that it's mm. his mother. Yes, we all know. And so we're all watching it horif- horrified yeah. if we were back in the day, right? So you can imagine the entertainment that they, that they watch, right? Absolutely. So we're, you know, and when he kills his father, you know, because he's just pissed off at this guy on the road, he doesn't know. And his father doesn't know either. Nobody knows. They don't know each other. Mm. And then he that must be some weird family reunions, right? <laughs> right, right. So it's a it's a fascinating story, actually, um, a unique story. I think, oh, yeah. uh, historically speaking, right, a, a unique story. There's not that. There's I can't think of another story where anyone married their mother. I mean, in the old days, you know, monarchies used to intermarry in their families. That mm. was pretty normal. I mean, you do have this famous stepmom story. That's right. That's right. So that you know, there is that kind of idea, but and what the album technically married his daughter, so yes, right? It's so there is this kind of I don't know, kind of creepiness yeah. in things. But uh, this one is I think this one is tragic because nobody nobody knows. Like yeah. everybody's trying to avoid it and it still happens. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Do you have, before you go, do you have anything you wish to promote on the social media where people can find you or any links you wish me to put in the description? Yes, yes, I do. So I actually pulled up a copy. So I wrote this book, mm-hmm. uh, She Who Hunts. So this book is actually just the Greek Artemis. Um, and what I did here is I put all of the rituals, the um, probably the bloodiest of the rituals, but everything I could find on the Greek Artemis that did not make it even into my own 
courses when I was an undergrad or graduate student, um, when I read about Artemis, you know, I had to go really dig stuff up. So I was very excited about this. And then I'm writing another one, well, probably next year on the Artemis of Ephesus, because that's a whole other, other. so if anybody wants to know about Artemis or Artemis things, you can find me on Instagram or everywhere at Artemis Expert, Twitter, whatever. Should have known, should have known. (laughs) <laughs> Artemis expert. So when I made when I published the book, my publisher said you have to have something, a brand. Think about a brand, and I thought, oh my goodness. Um, and so that, and then the other thing, as I as I mentioned to you, is that I'm going to on an Arctic expedition as a mythologist. So in Norway, there's a huntress goddess called Skadi. Have you heard of her? No. She she hunts and is on her skis. And That's so. That's familiar to me, I must admit. So I'm fascinated by her because she reminds me of Artemis very Mm -hmm. much. And so um, I'm on this expedition with the sea women. We're going to go and study. Well, the purpose of this expedition is to study the climate change and the oceans and the whales. But also we're talking to, you know, Nordic scholars and we're talking to indigenous scholars. And I really want to see and learn about um, more goddesses that are connected in a way to Artemis mm. and to and to these stories so it's going to be really exciting and I'm raising money for that because that trip is a lot yeah I can imagine <laughs> I mean I definitely I definitely plan to do an episode on Norse mythology as well it's trying, trying to go not too far off from Greek mythology I think right yeah I agree I think there's a lot of overlapping and I think one of my passions is finding how the stories overlap mm. in a way because it really shows us how we like stories and how we have similar beliefs yeah you know um so that's very exciting so yeah that's kind of what i'm up to this year yeah thank you so much for coming on again my name is alan this is on that h12 you can find us on spotify apple Podcasts, youtube wherever you can find podcasts please remember remember to like share and subscribe if you are on apple Podcasts, write a little review that would help us out a lot my name is alan and i'll see you next time see you later thank you so much no problem Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.